2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Do you ever think about the bowls, mugs, or vases you use every day? Well, the sometimes underappreciated art form of ceramics steals the spotlight in the new exhibit Hands and Earth on view at the Georgia Museum of Art. Later this hour, museum director Dr. William Island will tell us about this extensive collection of Japanese ceramics and how the show examines functional as well as artistic perspectives. First, beyond Timmy and the Well. Lassie's Yiddish counterpart takes on social justice issues. Theater Emory will offer a free video stream of a newly created puppet show. Lapsik the Clever Pup is based on an English translation from the original Yiddish by Emory University professor Miriam Udell. She joins us now with the show's director and puppeteer, Atlanta actor Jake Krakowski. Welcome to City Lights.
3: Thank you so much for having us, Louis.
1: It is great to be here.
2: Now, this is a puppet show with Jake doing all the puppetry in time to what's essentially a bilingual radio play, as you describe it, Miriam. We appreciate the reference to radio theater by the way how does the bilingual component work
1: well uh, we're working with both the original Yiddish text from 1935 cover published this book of twelve children's stories uh, in Yiddish and the way that we've kind of balanced it is that uh, we're using Miriam's wonderful new English translation for all of the narration. There's are stories for children, so there's a, a narrator thread that runs throughout in a very um, sort of typical children's story fashion. And then for all of the spoken character dialogue, we're retaining the original Yiddish.
2: Okay, let's talk about how the story unfolds. Would you tell us about the four chapters you chose from the original 12 Lapsig stories written by Javier Paver?
3: Sure, why don't I start us out and then I'll, I'll hand off the baton to Jake. The book begins in a very affecting way during the deepest, lowest point of the Great Depression, with a woman from Brownsville in Brooklyn who has taken the subway and is now far away from her home about an hour or better away from home on the subway in the deepest Bronx. And she's gone all that distance with a puppy in a basket because her mission, unfortunately, is to abandon him because her family can no longer feed this puppy. So she leaves him in the jackson avenue station in the bronx with a note around his neck explaining that the family is suffering terribly without work because of the depression and appealing to the good people who still have work to take this puppy home and oh by the way his name is lobzik and (laughs) that that's the uh, sort of um, pathetic you know there's real pathos there and it's the evening rush hour and all of the workers are coming home including a sewing machine operator named betel with laughing dark eyes and a and a big heart and betel sees this puppy cowering in the station and all alone and he bends down to read the note and he says well if we take him home we're gonna to have to feed him, but it'll make the kids so happy. And you know what? I'm just gonna do it." And so that's that's really the kind of origin story for how Lobzik comes to join this family that consists of Beryl and his energetic wife, Molly, and their brave son, Mulik, and their cheerful, nurturing daughter, rifkale
2: The first chapter, Lapsik and the Doctor, what happens in this portion?
1: So, Lobzik and the Doctor is, uh, is sort of representative of one of the primary lenses through which we were determining which stories to include, which is topical relevance. Uh, so, in Lobzik and the Doctor, Beryl and Molly are heading out for the day looking for work. Neither of them have been able to find any. Uh, Mulik is heading off to public school, uh, but the little daughter Rifkula is sick. She's been coughing terribly all day and so on their way out the door molly kneels down next to lobzik and she says listen lobzik i don't know if you can understand me but if you can we're going out you stay by rivkila's side and take care of her no matter what uh and that sort of introduces a thread that exists throughout the entire book which is that Lobzik can't really understand what people are saying. He can't, he doesn't speak human language, we're led to believe, but he is very clever. He's referred to as Dos Kluge Hintela, the clever pup. Uh, and so he manages to suss out what is being asked of him. And so uh, in that particular story, Rifkala's condition starts to deteriorate and Lobzik realizes, I've got to do something about this. and when he's unable to get a hold of any of the neighbors because they're either at work themselves or out searching for it, more likely, he runs out into the street and he heads down Jackson Avenue to a building with a green stoop. And he knows he needs to go there because whenever someone in the house is ill, that's where Mama Molly goes and she finds a man who has a bag uh, and some spectacles on. And so, uh, you know, we're led to understand that Lobzik doesn't know what a doctor is. He doesn't understand why this is important, but he's seen it before and he knows this is what he has to do. And he goes and fetches the doctor and brings him back, who is, and he's able to bring Rivka back to health. And this is one of the sort of really delightful and interesting elements of the way in which Khaver Paver was reaching out to his young readers, which was providing them with a character who had even less sort of access to the adult world and even less understanding of how things work than the children reading the books, which kind of gives them sort of a way in. They can see someone who sort of is an intermediary in that way and it, it kind of allows them to see themselves as uh, you know, active, active actors in life who can, who, hey, well, Lobzik doesn't even know about the doctor, but I know about the doctor and what you do when someone's sick, so I, there's something I can do to help. And that's the thread that that follows throughout the whole throughout the whole book, All Twelve Stories, we see the young people not just being sort of passive characters, but along with the kind of social and political intentions of the book, being very active actors in their own lives and going out into the world to try and change it in various ways.
3: And
2: one of the reasons you chose this chapter was because the little girl Rifkala is dangerously ill from an Airborne respiratory pandemic.
1: That's right. It is almost uh, Miriam is, has has observed this a number of times. It's almost shocking how how relevant all of the issues tackled in the book are, and and that one, you know, most most unsettlingly of all, it feels extremely immediate.
2: Labic's intuitive response, his sense of urgency. To get help immediately is similar to that of Lassie, the collie most famous (laughs) from the TV series based on the adventure stories.
3: That's right. There's so much resourcefulness on the part of this dumb creature, supposedly dumb creature. And there's so much desire to help and so much desire to be of use. And that's also a thread that runs throughout the Lobsick stories and also connects them to a very mainstream American cultural artifact like Lassie.
2: Yes, Miriam, I think you refer to Lobsick as the leftist Lassie. And speaking of leftist, Themes recurring throughout these stories deal with the labor movement and socialist politics in the 1930s. How do we see those themes in the chapter of Lapsig and the Mayor?
3: One of the important things to know about these stories by Haver Paver and so much Yiddish children's literature in general is that it grows out of a really vibrant political scene in which politics and education are connected to each other very tightly. And there's a really clear sense among Yiddish speaking cultural leaders, that you need to raise children with values and with a political vision that's going to enact those values in the world. And that's so much of what the author, Haver Paver, is trying to to do in these stories. So we see a a theme of nonviolent protest and collective action and labor action throughout several of the tales. There's one that focuses on a strike, and there's one that's part of our show that focuses on A peaceful protest at City Hall, where the the community members, they're identified in the text as workers. And it's really interesting for me as a translator, because one of the things that I realized is that in English and in the American cultural context, it's not so intuitive to call somebody a worker when they're unemployed but in the yiddish context to be a worker is is a whole identity and whether you happen to have employment at the moment or not you're still an arbiter that's who you are in the world and so these these workers as they're called these protesters Um, have been out of work for a long time, and there is no social safety net that that is available to them. And so they gather at City Hall to try to get the attention of the mayor and to demand their due, which is either give us work or give us bread, one or the other. There has to be some kind of government role in providing some kind of collective relief. And... The mayor is very insulated from the problem. In the the children's story that takes the form of his being well fed, well dressed, not wanting to go outside where it's cold, and being so comfortable in his office at the end of the hallway, that even in the midst of this clamoring protest outside in the freezing cold, he's warm and toasty enough that he can sit down at his desk and tuck into a big bowl of ice cream. That's how far away he is from the problems of the people. Um, And it is through Labzik's flexibility and nimbleness and ability to run between the legs of frightening police officers and get into the building that he is able to go and find the mayor and show the people that, in fact, the mayor has been in his office all along um, kind of enjoying himself when the mayor had previously sent out a a factotum of his to tell the people that the mayor isn't there and that he's often Albany advocating for your welfare um, and trying to get the people to disperse. And it's really Lobzik who's able to carry the message that your politician your your duly elected political leader is present and he's not taking care of your needs and he needs to be voted out.
2: Yeah, and he's wearing a diamond neck pin. Well, I mean, these are archetypes if you want to take it that far. I mean, it's certainly a comment on capitalism, but in the context of your show in the presentation it just makes such simple common sense to kids without any labels attached
1: absolutely i i think one of the reasons this appealed to us and one of the reasons that the puppet film stylistic conventions seemed so appropriate for these stories is that while on one hand they are they there are archetypes and they are simplified presentations of more complex adult political and social issues. And they are uh, didactic as well, right? Khaver Paver had a very specific ideological intention. He had specific moral and political values he wanted to communicate. But despite all of that, the lessons still feel very urgent and it, there's something very clarifying to pre- present these relationships and dynamics and problems in such a direct and simple and straightforward way that I think we're not really used to discussing a lot of these issues. And I think there is something very valuable for those of us who are not children in, uh, in this type of presentation.
2: Director Jake Krakowski and Professor Miriam Udell discussing Theatre Emery's production of lapsic The Tales of a Clever Pup. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. Let's return to my conversation with director Jake Krakowski and professor Miriam Udell. We've been discussing theater Emery's bilingual film of Lapsic, Tales of a Clever Pop based on the 1935 stories of Kaver Paver, translated to English by Miriam Yudel. Here, Jake talks about how Yiddish political theater and toy theater inspired the creation of this production.
1: Being someone who's kind of early on in my in my journey, engaging with the Yiddish language and Yiddish culture more deeply. Um, I really did not have a appreciation, even growing up Jewish, knowing that my, uh, most of my ancestors spoke Yiddish. I did not have an appreciation for the depth and breadth of, uh, modern Yiddish literary and cultural forms, including the Yiddish theater, which both back in, central and Eastern Europe and here in the United States was a hugely popular form uh and and a rich and an internally diverse one that included everything from you know kind of cutting-edge radical political sentiments to um uh uh, of classics of of shakespeare uh and things like that and i just found that so, so exciting and so fascinating and the toy theater element is uh is something that came into play I would say both creative and practical uh, reasons. So, for those people who aren't familiar, toy theater uh, generally refers to a type of performance involving quite literally a miniature theater, a tiny little proscenium stage of some kind, um, and tiny little puppets or objects that are manipulated in performance on them. And uh, there's a company, there's a toy the- company that specializes in toy theater called Great Small Works, which is a wonderful company who's also done a lot of work that engages with Jewish and Yiddish traditions. So I think I, I sort of had them in the back of my mind uh, when we were trying to determine, okay, we know that we're interested in puppetry as a way to tell these stories, to bring these old stories back to life. But that could mean a lot of different things. You know, I've, I've, in addition to working as a puppeteer, I've done a lot of educational work and, you know, I tell my audiences and my students, whether they're kindergartners or uh, adult theater professionals about the uh, incredibly vast Uh, varieties of puppet styles that exist around the world and have existed over time and so when we were trying to figure this out there were the practical concerns that came into play when we realized that a live or an in-person production would not be possible you know in a different world we would do this with uh, hand puppets and i would have had a team of six undergrads who i might train and we would work together but because of the limitations due to you know necessary precautions because of COVID, we realized that thinking small, not in terms of our ambitions, but in a very literal physical sense, uh, might afford us a lot more leeway with the other creative elements. There is also something I think really special about the paper puppets that we're working with. So uh, in, in utilizing the miniature theater style we were able to work with very simple materials you know everything is made out of out of paper and ink basically and that was something i was very interested in early on because the the cultural milieu that these stories sort of burst out from is one that is very paper and ink based whether that is you know the scores of competing uh, leftist newspapers, whether that is the lavishly illustrated Yiddish poetry collections. Um, you know, we're talking about the 1930s in New York city, and it was a very, very thriving time for Yiddish culture. And it was often occurring in these rather simple, you know, materials, uh, and really, really rich intellectual and creative and political ideas being communicated just through paper and ink. The one other element that really brought that aspect together is we lucked into an entire team of extraordinary collaborators, but regarding the visual style, we lucked into a collaboration with this extraordinary local artist uh, named Ryan Bradburn, who is an illustrator and a fabricator of sets and props, who created, I don't have a number for you, I think we might be nearing a 100, many, many, many dozens of Uh, distinct little puppets um, for all of these different scenarios, including many different versions of the same puppet. There are probably at least a dozen puppets of just uh, Lobzik himself, because as as Ryan explained to us, it's much easier to make 10 puppets that each do one trick uh, than one puppet that's capable of of 10 different tricks. So we, we had Ryan on our team who did this incredible visual work paired with another fabulous local artist, Marsha Cohen, who created these absolutely beautiful backgrounds and set pieces that his puppets interact within. So we managed to create this very sort of cohesive, inclusive visual world inspired by those by, you know, Yiddish modernist illustration of the time and all these other elements, but one that is also very distinctly ours, very distinctly contemporary as well.
2: Were those drawings... Of the characters in the original illustrations, rather stereotyped. I was struck by how Semitic-looking the characters are.
1: It's now, it's it's a very good and legitimate question because it was actually a topic of uh, you know maybe I'm curious, Miriam, what you would say because it was a topic of some real conversation between us because when we got our first renderings from Ryan, Miriam and I both looked at it and we were like. right we're not trying to you know self-stereotype here but these these don't really look like little ashkenazi jewish children in the 1930s
3: (laughs) so yeah so i would love to just say a word about the evolution the evolution of the visual vocabulary that we ended up using for these characters to try to get at some of the the truth of who they were so the the visual rendering began with storyboards, which were wonderful because they put all of us literally on the same page, as far as understanding how this storytelling was going to unfold visibly. And the first rendering of Bettel, the sewing machine operator, wanted to convey that he was a jolly man with a good sense of humor. And apparently, the visual shorthand for that in the United States is a, a man of some girth. Um, he was a, sort of a fat, cheerful fellow. And, you know, Jake and I looked at these and we said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is the depression.
2: Yes. Nobody,
3: nobody except the, the mayor is getting fat here, you know. Betel and his family barely have enough to eat. So the first thing was to to kind of dial that back. And then the second issue was that the characters did look very American in a sort of 30s to mid-century way, but I would say that they looked sort of corn-fed and Midwestern and it did not really (laughs) communicate any sort of ethnic Jewishness. So, we did not want to exoticize, but we did want to represent and to find that balance between representation, you know, without exoticizing, without erasing the truth of who these people were. And I was so excited when I got to watch a rough cut earlier this week of, of where we finally landed, because there was this one puppet where I could see really clearly that Bettel's head, because of his, his um, sort of Jufro, his kind of curly nappy hair and the way that it's parted in the middle, trying to be somewhat dapper and put together, his head ended up being somewhat heart-shaped and that was just so perfect for this character that his head really is where his heart is and that in some way it got to the truth of who betel is in these stories and i feel like there were so many kind of happy accidents and instances of evolution as we came to the final form of what these puppets would look like
2: Miriam, your research and scholarly work has focused on Yiddish language and culture. Many Yiddish words have made their way into English language common usage, to the point where in newspapers and publications, they aren't even italicized. Schlepp, Schmooze, Maven, to name just a few What do we know about interest in the study of Yiddish language beyond the colorful words or phrases?
3: Well, we know that there is so much excitement right now. For decades, there have been intensive summer programs available. There have been all kinds of different projects and programs through the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst and the YIVO Institute in New York, as well as institutions in Europe, in Israel, in, in South America. But I would say that during the pandemic, um, all of these kind of seeds, you know, that the, that were already blossoming have become, I don't know, I want to say locally kudzu or something that is just growing unchecked because all of a sudden the local programming has become available on a global scale. I am part of a Yiddish reading group that's based in New York that now draws participants from Amsterdam and from the Midwest and from California and from Israel and one woman in Tokyo, um, I am for the first time since coming to Emory in 2007. I'm able to take a Yiddish class I was able to take an intensive one during the winter break and now i've cut back to to once a week and i'm joining students who are all over. The country and a, a few in Europe, and then the other really exciting thing that's been happening very recently is that in April the app duolingo the language learning app released their 40th language and it was yiddish and you're never going to believe how many people have registered to learn yiddish with duolingo um i last heard about it I don't know, maybe three weeks ago, I watched a webinar about it with the creators. And at that point they had 230,000 people registered. And so I think we're well over a quarter of a million people studying Yiddish on their phones now. So it's, it's a real feeling of momentum and excitement.
2: It is exciting. Do we know anything about age demographics, location of these people?
3: well i mean jake my collaborator i would say that he's exhibit a right do you do you want to talk about the millennial and zoomer yiddishists jake
1: yeah uh there is you know i've taken a number of um so one one of the experiences that precipitated this project really coming to fruition was miriam encouraged me to attend uh one of these uh summer intensives uh, and so i attended the program through the yiddish book center and Since then, I've attended a number of classes and lectures and performances and conversation groups, and there are a lot of young people who are very interested and excited by learning Yiddish, learning the language, learning about the culture. Um, And I think one aspect of that is that um, for a variety of different reasons, um, a lot of millennial and Gen Z uh, American Jews are not as uh, involved and engaged with institutional Jewish life as they may once have been. And I think this aspect, the the element of, of our heritage that is represented by the Yiddish language and the Yiddish culture is one that we were not really, those of us who came up in Jewish institutional spaces, it was often not not really made available wasn't considered uh, something that young people would be interested in and so it's kind of like all rushing in at once and people are realizing that there is this incredibly rich world that is available to us and that is by no means a dead language you know not only because quite a lot of people uh you know mostly Hasidic and Haredi Jews speak it as their day-to-day language but also because there is a global community of people who are interested in Yiddish linguistically, musically, from a literary perspective, from a scholarly perspective, um, from, from every angle you can imagine. And lots and lots of young folks are finding a lot of excitement and a lot of a connection to that.
2: I think that is marvelous. You mentioned the musicality. I must congratulate you on the music in this production. It is just wonderful. Very much a klezmer sound.
1: Yeah, a lot of what you are hearing is from our incredibly sharp sound designer and engineer melanie chen cole who not only selected some and composed the rest of the music that you're hearing but also put help us put together all of the voice acting created the soundscape of of rain and of crowds and of barking dogs and of subway trains and really put together that um, sort of radio play that is the audio basis for the piece as a whole. Um, and actually, Lois, because you watched a rough draft, let's say, one thing that is that is very exciting, an element that is not yet in place, is we really lucked out to also collaborate with a couple of really top-notch uh, klezmer musicians, uh, Michael Winograd and Jake Schulman mint who are really sort of the top of the line uh, in each of their respective instruments and very prominent folks in the in the global klezmer world. And uh, I actually just today uh, received a bunch of f- files in my email of some new recordings that they have composed originally for our production based on uh, some of the puppetry material that we've got that is going to be incorporated alongside what's already there.
2: Wonderful. Do you hope, that presentation of these Lopsik stories through theater Emery may spark some interest in Yiddish language among very young children and perhaps among people who aren't Jewish.
3: I certainly hope so. I think that these are really universal stories and that is not to elide any of the specific cultural context out of which they sprang, because that's really important. And that's something that we wanted to preserve and transmit. But these stories take us to very deep, very emotionally rich human places that I think we can all travel together. And so I I hope that that is going to come across and be where this production leads we'll see how interested people get you know now if they if they want to start exploring with yiddish as i said a moment ago there are all of these resources that are right in our pockets on our on our phones on our computers and there are so many points of entry into yiddish culture
2: Emory University Professor Miriam Udell and Theatre Emory Director Jake Krakowski. Theatre Emory's production of Lapsic Tales of a Clever Pup will stream from May 24th through June 5th. There's no charge to view the film and more information can be found on our website wabe.org slash City Lights. You're listening to City Lights on 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to be with you. The artistry of Jason Hines is evident in his intricate creations for the Center for Puppetry Arts, with characters including The Cat in the Hat, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, and Pete the Cat. Jason Hines is the resident puppet builder at this Center. I spoke with him in February of last year about his creations for their production of Stella Luna. Here Jason explains his approach to creating the puppets.
4: Not only do they have to look like the characters in the book and everyone recognize them, they have to function. They have to be able to be puppeteered and and bring those characters to life on stage. So it's not just about turning it into a nice sculpture. It has to be a functional tool for the puppeteers to use on stage.
2: And could you take us through that creative process from inception to final puppet?
4: Oh uh, sure, um, When well, we start with the illustrations. When we're adapting a story, we'll have illustrations in the book to go from. I'll usually turn those into my own drawings where I'll analyze the style of what the illustrator or author was trying to do.
2: I would like to add here, you are a very fine artist. Those oh, Those are you. beautiful <laughs> drawings.
4: Then there comes a point where we have to get it off the page. And I'll usually start by making like a really rough, very simple cardboard mock-up. And um, I do this very quickly out of materials that don't cost anything. Because... Oh, my
2: goodness. Amazon boxes. Can I bring <laughs> you my Amazon boxes? Oh,
4: We have plenty.
2: <laughs> we have I, a huge I, I think the planet has yes. plenty. Um, it's a joy
4: to be able to just have the freedom to cut them up and glue them together and to be wrong and try different things before we spend any money trying to make the real one.
2: Is it essential to have been a puppeteer before you become a puppet builder?
4: It's not essential. There are several puppet builders out in the world who don't perform, but for me, I feel fortunate that I am. The only reason that I started building puppets was because I needed them for the shows that I wanted to do, (laughs) and it just seemed like natural, like, well, I'll just build them. And the other builder in the shop who works with me, Carol D'Agostino, she's also a good performer. And as we're building things, we're always doing silly voices and trying out the puppets. And I always like to think if we can't have fun in the shop with them, then they're not going to have fun with them in rehearsal and it's not going to be fun on stage. So I I think it's really
2: important. Jason, we know there are different types of puppets, rod puppets, Mm -hmm. marionettes. What determines what kind of puppet the creature is? That's a
4: really big decision that happens early on. And usually I will collaborate with John Ludwig, our artistic director who writes and directs a lot of the shows to figure out what style of puppet's gonna be best. And a lot of times it's based on the action that they have to do.
2: Jason Hines is the resident puppet builder at the Center for Puppetry Arts. Their show, Pinocchio, is on view through this Sunday. How much do you think about the bowls, cups, and vases you use every day? Well, the sometimes underappreciated art form of ceramics steals the spotlight in the new Georgia Museum of Art exhibition, Hands and Earth. The show focuses on Japanese ceramics and examines both functional and artistic perspectives. Dr. William Island is the museum director. He's with us now via Zoom. Dr. Island, welcome to City Lights.
0: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be joining y'all. This exhibition draws
2: from the collection of Carol and Jeffrey Horvitz, What makes
0: their collection extraordinary? The very size of the collection makes it extraordinary. But this exhibition is among some of the most beautiful objects in their collection. And they were chosen specifically to give something of a history, a brief history of Japanese ceramics. So their works in this exhibition are particularly important. But their exhibition as a whole is probably the most important collection of Japanese contemporary ceramics in the private hands of the United States.
2: Wow. This show features works by 20th and 21st century Japanese artists. Right. Would you tell us something about the historical context beginning in the 1930s?
0: The show is divided into several sections, actually, because the catalog is divided that way into six sections. And we should begin with watch Japanese ceramics because it really arises from the tea ceremony, basically, and that introduction into Japan of tea as an important part of daily life, which really begins in the 7th century of the common era in China, and then it spreads to Japan, and as tea became more popular and more part of quotidian Japanese culture, so did ceramics, and those ceramics, true to Japanese culture and even true to Chinese culture, the more decorative and exquisite The vessel was the better. So the
2: tradition dates back to the 7th century. Was there something that happened with the tea ceremony in the 20th century?
0: Well, in the earlier 20th century, actually, what we have is a certain disconnect between what was considered decorative and what was considered functional. We are showing both utilitarian and beautiful objects. While I find the utilitarian equally as beautiful as the decorative objects, we are showing both. The debate in Japan over that disconnect was because the traditionalists wanted to emphasize local methods of manufacture, local glazes, local clay, whereas the, let's say, the more avant-garde Japanese ceramists wanted to introduce new forms, new glazes, new ideas, while still keeping functional uh, shapes, basically. But the traditionalists wanted utilitarian works that were beautifully made.
2: Is there a correspondence to the movement in Great Britain in the 1930s. And the Mingé, the folk craft movement from Japan in Vienna, there was a similar movement with functional pieces also being beautiful, the Wiener Werkstätte. And arts and crafts in the U.S. with Frank Lloyd Wright and that school is is it more of a class situation that here what can become functional can also be beautiful, but it's not meant for royalty. It's meant for everyday people.
0: Yeah, I think you're making an excellent point that the tradition in Britain of the 1930s, also in the United States, the arts and crafts movement, fits right into what you're referring to as the mingei tradition in Japanese porcelainware, and that is looking to the folk art. But folk art is not a exactly the same definition we have in English. Folk art means the craftsmanship, the artistry of the folk. And it's just what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about traditional glazes, traditional clays, that sort of thing, but put to new and different uses or even forms, if you will. The traditional form, of course, is the vessel. Because it was used for water, for example, for the tea ceremony, but also the cup and even the plate on which there may have been some savory or some cookie served as well. But the tea ceremony itself was really not only the beginning in Japan, but also that influence lasts even through the Mingi period, even through these periods later in the 30s and the 50s and even into the early 21st century.
2: I'm intrigued with this functional versus decorative. And you're saying of course an object can be both. But if an object is functional, is the process for creating that object considered a craft rather than
0: art? Well, you know what? You have you have put your finger on the discussion of the lifetime because that (laughs) has been going on for a long time, as I'm sure you're very aware. Objects in this exhibition exhibit both beauty or the decorative, as well as the functionality. We see that throughout the exhibition, there be examples of utilitarian objects that are also quite lovely. So what I said was that at any rate, we're showing works that are both from artists from the early 20th century through the present day. And in that way, we're really looking at both the traditional as well as the contemporary urge to a higher aesthetic. And I think that's what you're talking about as well, is that higher aesthetic around which we build schools or communities or even traditions of craftsmanship or artistry the exhibition really does distill the argument of functional versus decorative in the history of Japanese porcelains to one basic premise, as far as I'm concerned, and that these objects are extraordinarily beautiful, and more often than not, share a serenity of spirit that is matched by the excellence of the craftsmanship. So, in answering your question about craft and art, particularly in Japanese porcelain, there's often not that distinction. I see great artistry in these porcelains that we're going to be showing, but I also see the craftsmanship that goes into them, and I don't really see that there is that distinction that we make so often in the West between art and craft, craft being some sort of lesser mechanical version of artistry. You know, a professor here once said, did I know the difference between an artist and an artisan? Do you know the difference between an artist and an artisan? I don't. Well, he said the artisan can do it twice. <laughs> well,
2: I love your summation of art versus craft because there is Absolutely no reason they need to be in competition with one another. And these pieces do illustrate that functional works can be beautiful and that just simply artistic works can be made of porcelain
0: clay sculpture that is in another medium. I think you're absolutely right. In fact, I believe that being a museum director means that you're just continuing your liberal arts education. So I had to learn a lot about Japanese porcelains, uh, even to talk to you today. And I was fascinated by the differences between earthenware, stoneware, and porcelain, because I hadn't really given that much thought, because my background was in early Italian art. And I thought that that was a sort of fascinating way to get into the object itself by understanding how it was made. Yes. You mentioned porcelain.
2: Of all of the images sent from your show, the one that captivated me the most was a celadon-glazed
0: porcelain piece on three legs. Is it a vase? Oh, I love that piece. It has a tranquility. It has a serenity. It has an inner beauty. It has an integrity in its creation that appeals to me, as great art always does. You know, I find secrets in the objects, and I want to understand the secret that is in that object. I want to understand where the beauty in that object comes from. I'm sorry if I'm waxing a little lyrical, but no, I do love- I
2: love lyrical and I love hearing you talk about but this. I,
0: well, I love I love that piece, and you're great to point it out because I want everybody to see it. You know, we have some work up right now, and one of them has a Celadon glaze that is this beautiful blue. And if you look at Celadon glazes with Japanese porcelain, they often leave the crack lure that occur. With celadon glazes, and I found that fascinating because you're able to see not only the beautiful glaze, but you're also able to see the very support for that glaze, which is after all porcelain, stoneware, or earthenware. So I'm hoping that the audiences will look closely at these works. I saw this exhibition first at the Trammell Crow Museum in Dallas, Texas, and there was a line to get in to see it. But once you got into the exhibition, it was the quietest crowd I have heard in an exhibition. I heard nothing. People were not whispering. They weren't talking. They were looking at these beautiful objects. And the moment I saw them, I said, we need to show this exhibition. Oh, wow.
2: You mentioned the spirit of a piece. And I wondered, is there something about this pottery you have on display that makes it distinctly Japanese? Is there an aesthetic that one can apply to Japanese contemporary pottery?
0: Well, yes, I think there is an aesthetic that takes into account the production itself, the means of production, as well as those raw materials that go into the creation of something beautiful. And that's what I mean when I talk about the secret of the work, that you are looking at it and you're going to understand if you look long enough, to a certain degree, the clay because you'll be told what the clay is, and also the glaze. And then most important, as far as I'm concerned, often, is the firing of the work, because now the most beautiful objects that I see are wood-fired, which a lot of them in our exhibition are. So hands and earth seems a rather prosaic description of what's in this exhibition. So I thought we should add to that equation of hand and earth fire and glaze. And then we're returning to a universal sort of aesthetic, an Aristotelian one, if you will. Oh, my.
2: Dr. William Island, I have so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Oh, let's do it again. Let's do. And I can't wait to see the show. Those pieces are gorgeous. And if the Horvitzes get tired of that Celadon three-legged piece, I'll take it. (laughs)
0: I'll remember that. (laughs) I can show you some some Fabergé jewelry that I've sworn that I'm going to be wearing the next time we have an opening. Oh,
2: I Uh, love it. Thank you again. Dr. William Island is the museum director at the Georgia Museum of Art, located on the campus of the University of Georgia. Hands and Earth, Perspectives on Japanese Contemporary Ceramics will be on display from May 22nd through August 15th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Our theme music is the first time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producer is Summer Evans. And Shelley Knavey is our engineer. I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at WABE.org citylights City Lights. Have a safe and good weekend and thank you for listening to WABE at Lattice Choice for NPR.